Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, beginning in verse 30. Let's go ahead and read Luke 24, verses 30 through 35. When he, that is Jesus, was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Them is referring to the two disciples that were on the road to Emmaus that day. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let us pray briefly together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we ask that your spirit would walk with us now, even as Jesus, the resurrected and ascended Christ, walked with his disciples on the road to Emmaus from Jerusalem that day, and he opened up to them the scriptures, and their hearts burned within them. Lord, may our hearts burn within us tonight. May you walk with us and open up your scriptures to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we just read about the meal that followed the journey of two disciples walking with Jesus Christ from Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus. And did you notice the rhetorical question that one of the disciples, or perhaps both of them, asked after this meal with Jesus? The rhetorical question you find there, as they say to each other in verse 32, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Therein we find the assessment of these two disciples after having spent time with Jesus. After having hearing from Christ himself, the scriptures opened up. To them. And what was Christ opening up in the scriptures? Well, if we were to back up and look at verses 25 through 27, we would see precisely what Jesus was teaching them as he opened the scriptures. Verse 25 begins, And he said to them, that is Jesus to these two disciples, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so, 
On the road to Emmaus that day, Jesus opened up the scriptures to them to show them the things concerning himself. The way in which all of scripture, Moses, or what we typically call the law, the first five books of the Bible, and all the prophets, all of scripture, even the writings, they all pointed to Jesus Christ. And then we see Jesus then breaking the bread. And in that moment of him breaking the bread, blessing it and giving it to his disciples, he was revealed unto them. That's when they had the great epiphany of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus vanishes, as our text tells us. He's nowhere uh, to be found. But after their hearts had been burning with the scriptures, after seeing and beholding Christ and the breaking of the bread, what do these two disciples do? Well, they make that seven-mile journey back to Jerusalem that very hour. They had just walked for seven miles hearing from Jesus how to understand the scriptures. They get to the village there in Emmaus, and they can't wait any longer to go back and tell the rest of the disciples what they had just seen and heard. They were quickened. They were enlivened. They were invigorated. They were strengthened. The good news could not wait until tomorrow. And so it's a fitting phrase that they use in this rhetorical question, did not our hearts burn? And you know, when we think about meals, uh, heartburn can be an unpleasant thing. Heartburn uh, is typically a bad thing when it comes to physical foods. But spiritual food, food that comes from Christ, is to give us heartburn uh, when it is properly digested. In fact, we saw in this passage that both word and sacrament were given to these disciples. And as a result, their hearts were burning and they could see Christ clearly. It's no wonder then they had such burning of heart. But here's the thing about physical food. Uh, When a physical food is received, we normally don't have to do anything to digest it. Right? Our bodies just begin to automatically digest a physical food. It's, it's pretty much mindless for us. We don't have to sit there after a meal and coach our muscles to work that food down our throats. It's automatic. We don't have to sit there and think about how our stomachs need to break down the food. We're not calibrating and calculating in our minds the right percentage of, of bile from the bile duct out of the gallbladder that we're going to need to break down those fats in that food. Right? We're, not, we're not mindfully digesting physical food. Our bodies do it for us automatically. But what about with a spiritual meal? Do our souls automatically digest spiritual food? Well, I think as we look through Scripture and as we look at our own lives, we could say No. But oftentimes, we don't just automatically digest spiritual meals. They take thoughtfulness. They take mindfulness. And so tonight, we are going to uh, consider how to properly digest spiritual food. So that we too can enjoy the heartburn of a spiritual feast.
And so that's where this evening, although we've begun in Luke 24, uh, we are going to shift into something of a topical sermon tonight, not something that I do often, uh, but we're going to come into the topic tonight, at least part one of it, of uh, communion digestion or digesting uh, the supper, since we had the Lord's Supper together this morning. Now, many of you are well aware of communion preparation. As communion preparation emails uh, come out and begin to orient your mind so you can come to the table mindfully, thoughtfully, uh, examining uh, yourselves and, and discerning the body of Christ. And as we par- partook of communion together this morning, we were actively engaged in communion participation. So not only communion preparation, but also communion participation. But I wonder if any of us give much thought as to what do we do after communion? Do we just check out? Or is there something that is to come even after communion service? J.G. Voss uh, gives a helpful reminder of the importance of of continuing to keep the communion service engaged in our thinking as part of our uh, profitable digestion of uh, communion. He states it this way, to drop the matter from our thoughts as soon as the actual communion service is dismissed would be to lose a part of the spiritual profit that we should receive from the sacrament. Now, we don't like losses. Uh, We like profits. Uh, We like gains, not losses. So let us learn this evening how to thoughtfully engage ourselves after the Lord's Supper for our spiritual profit. Uh, To do so, uh, we will use our beloved catechism, not the one for weaker capacities as we are going through in Sabbath school, uh, but the larger catechism. In fact, the Westminster divines did not overlook this important reality of digesting communion. As you can imagine, the Westminster Divines don't overlook much, if anything, uh, that we've seen, and they haven't. And so the larger catechism in question 175, as you have in the back of your bulletin, asks the question this way. What is the duty of Christians after they have received the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? And you can follow along with me there as we read Uh, the answer in its entirety, and then we'll unpack a few sections. The duty of Christians after they have received the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is seriously to consider how they have behaved themselves therein, and with what success. If they find quickening and comfort to bless God for it, beg the continuance of it, watch against relapses, fulfill their vows, and encourage themselves to a frequent attendance on that ordinance. But if they find no present benefit, more exactly to review their preparation to and carriage at the sacrament, in both which, if they can approve themselves to God and their own consciences, they are to wait for the fruit of it in due time. But if they see they have failed in either, they are to be humbled and to attend upon it afterward, with more care and diligence. Well, let us unpack uh, this in uh, small uh, chunks uh, this evening. And this will only be the first part, so we're not going to make our way through the entirety of this answer. The first chunk of this answer 
that the divines give in uh, question and answer 175 is this. Uh, it tells us to consider our behavior. Or as that opening line says, the duty of Christians after they have received the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is seriously to consider how they have behaved themselves therein and with what success. Now, it's always good to consider our ways, uh, no matter what we're doing. Uh, But it is of a special importance and of particular importance to consider our ways when we have drawn near to God in worship. Uh, You can think of Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3. Uh, This is uh, what Moses said to Aaron. Uh, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. Now, if you remember back to our regular principle of worship series, Leviticus 10 is where Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, drew near to God, offered up strange fire, and were consumed by God's judgment on the spot as they drew near to him in worship. And so Leviticus 10 reminds us, as the Lord himself speaks to Aaron through Moses, that when, those, when his people draw near to him, he will be sanctified. He will be set apart as holy, and his glory will not be trampled underfoot. He will not let himself uh, be, uh, be diminished by those who draw near him to worship him or to commune with him. And so... Uh, lest we think that's just an isolated incident in the Old Testament, uh, Paul highlights this very danger uh, when he uh, gives the institution of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11 as we, as we see and are reminded once again of what, what Paul had told the church in his day. He began there in verse 17... But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. And why was it for the worse in some cases? Well, if you jump down to verse 30 and 31, we see precisely why. He says, uh, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. In other words, some were coming to the table not judging accurately what they were doing and what kind of act they were involved in in drawing near to the Lord. And so some had uh, grown weak and ill and some died for drawing near to God in the Lord's Supper and communing with Him and not doing so by first considering their ways and considering what they were doing as they drew near to the living God. And so we must learn to consider our ways. We must learn, if we're going to use, we can use Paul's language here, we must learn to judge ourselves rightly. And this is the case even after we partake of the supper. And when we do, we will fall into one of three categories. And the Westminster Larger Catechism gives us the, these very categories in the answer we just read. Uh, the first category is the person who immediately benefits from the supper. Right, um, the person who immediately benefits, and that's what we're going to focus on tonight. Uh, the second category is the person who has no present benefit from the supper, 
but is to wait for the fruit of it in due time. Okay, we saw that uh, after the colon. But if they find no present benefit, to more exactly to review their preparation to and carriage of the sacrament. And so those who uh, have no present benefit, and then they review and consider more carefully, and if they can approve themselves to God and their own consciences, then wait for the fruit of it in due time. Okay, that'll be the second category. And then the third category, the third person that the catechism gives to us is the last one here after the semi, the last semicolon. But if they see they have failed in either, they are to be humbled and to attend upon it afterward with more care and diligence. So the person who has no present benefit and then must humbly acknowledge one's own negligence in the preparation of it. And so those are the three categories, and we're going to just stick with then the first part of this answer, the person who immediately benefits from the supper. And you know, this, of course, is the ideal. This is the goal when you come to the Lord's Supper, is to have immediate benefit as you commune with Christ, and as you commune with the people of God. And in general, this ought to be the expected norm when we draw near to God in the supper and he draws near to us. We ought to expect benefit from this spiritual meal, even as we would expect benefit from a physical meal, that our hunger would be satisfied and satiated, that our, comfort, that our hunger pangs would be comforted, uh, that we would be given energy. Have you ever been out on the trail and just depleted of energy and then you take some honey or an energy packet or you eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and immediately you feel enlivened again. Okay, that's, that's what physical food does. And we, we expect that from physical food. And that's what we ought to expect as well as we come and partake of spiritual food. And so here's what we see for the first person, uh, that first category uh, of one who immediately benefits uh, in, this, in this next chunk of our catechism here. Uh, and it teaches us this. If benefited, then bless God and beg for more. Okay, if you've been benefited this morning uh, in the partaking of the supper, then bless God for it and beg for more. Uh, the first part, uh, bless God for it, we see that in this phrase. If they find quickening and comfort, to bless God for it. Okay, and so after the supper, as you take time to reflect, uh, ask yourself, have I been blessed? Have I been quickened and given that spiritual energy uh, to, to love God and to love people more? Have I been comforted by feeding on Christ, knowing that I feed on the bread of life? If so, if you've experienced those immediate benefits in consuming the supper, then bless God for it. This is the covenantal exchange of blessings. If God has blessed you, in the receiving of his sacrament, then bless God for it. Okay, the, the scriptures are full of this kind of language uh, that God not only blesses us, but we actually can bless God. We can bless him with our mouths. We can praise him uh, with our lives. And that's what we saw uh, in the passages that we read, especially the Second Chronicles uh, chapter 30 passage. Uh, that we read about uh, the Passover and that Feast of Unleavened Bread under King Hezekiah. 
that there was an abundance of people gathering in Jerusalem uh, to keep the feast, uh, to keep the Passover. And in verse 21, we are told that it was with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. Okay, that's, that's what it looks like to bless God uh, for blessings received, is to bless Him by praising Him day by day with all our might. A similar pattern, of course, was seen in Acts chapter 2, as we read that earlier as well. Uh, there in the verses 47, primarily, that they were praising God. Okay, the fruit of having uh, gathered with the fellowship and committed themselves to the breaking of the bread and receiving the apostolic teaching and the apostolic doctrines and this covenant meal was a, a, an environment of gladness, of unity of heart, and that unity of heart was expressed there in verse 47 as praising God. And so they partook and then praised. And that is what we're called to do. Uh, we are to partake and then praise. Or if we've received blessing, uh, then respond and bless God for blessings received. The larger catechism also goes on to say not only to bless God for it, but to also beg the continuance of it. Beg for the continuance of the blessing of Christ. Now, this is a fitting word, isn't it? Uh, to beg God uh, for the continuance of it. Uh, beg, it reminds us that in the supper we are but mere beggars uh, and receivers of the bread of life, uh, not deservers of it. We have not worked for it, we have not earned it as our wage. Uh, but we have been mere beggars around the table. And it has been only by the gracious provision of God himself to give us uh, Christ and his benefits. And so it is not beneath the dignity of the Christian to beg for more of Christ. Uh, but it is actually our, our most dignified pursuit in this life. Uh, to, to highlight what this looks like and begging the continuance of it, I'll just read some of the proof texts that the catechism provides itself here. First one being Psalm 36, verse 10. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Did you hear that in David's prayer? Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you. That, that's begging language uh, for God's continued grace and mercy. Uh, here's, a, here's a wonderful proof text from the Song of Solomon. It's what's often referred to as the bride's dream. And it's uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verse 4, uh, reads like this. Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. Okay, that, that is graphic language of a love that has been awakened in the bride that she has for her groom or the one whom her soul loves. And, and the Song of Solomon then serves us with a picture of how the bride of Christ is to long for and love Christ, our groom. Uh, and the, the language is so strong here in this passage uh, that shortly after that, uh, the Song of Solomon will go on to issue a warning uh, you know, don't awaken love until the proper time. 
uh, that this awakened love is such a, a gripping, all-consuming thing that the bride cannot get enough of. And so, and so she issues the warning, you know, don't awaken this type of thing until it's the proper time. Uh, she was in the intense grip of affection and love and desire uh, for uh, the groom. And that's the picture then that we ought to have as we have intimately partaken of Christ, our groom, as his bride this morning. Uh, that, that we, uh, when we have found him, that we hold him and will not let him go until we can uh, enjoy him even more fully. Uh, that's the picture here that Song of Solomon presents for us. Well, if you've had this love awakened for Christ, you don't need any further coaching on how to beg for it. It is an all-consuming desire and intimacy of your soul. One more text that the Catechism provides for us that I'll read. Uh, David's prayer of begging to provide, uh, for God to keep providing his blessing, uh, found in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 18. David prays this, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. Keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people. May we learn to pray like David prayed here. Uh, May we, we learn to seek the continuance of the love of Christ to be kept forever in our hearts and in the hearts of God's people. Well, we must not only be beggars, as the Catechism says, uh, we must also, as part of our proper digestion of the supper, uh, also be watchful and humble. Okay, and we see that in the, in the phrase here, uh, watch against relapses. Watch against relapses. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10, uh, if you'd like, or listen as I read a couple of verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. Paul writes, And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And then we get this final warning in verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. And so Paul is reminding us of the people of God, of the Old Covenant and that wilderness generation, that they too had a spiritual feast. They too uh, fed on Christ and drank from Christ. Uh, But then he, he shows us what happened. He shows us their downfall as they grew prideful, as they didn't watch against the evil in their hearts, as they didn't watch against relapses into sin. And so Paul issues this warning, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands uh, take heed, lest he fall. Thomas Ridgely, uh, one commentator on the larger catechism, um, and in reference to this verse in 1 Corinthians 10, says it this way, It is observed that they who have been quickened and comforted when partaking of the Lord's Supper ought to watch against relapses into those sins which formerly they were overtaken with. We still have deceitful hearts 
which before we are aware may betray us into the committing of such sins as have occasioned a great distress to us in past times. And we are subject also to the endeavors of Satan to ensnare us by his wiles, so that when we think ourselves in the greatest safety, we may be exposed to the greatest dangers. When we think ourselves in the greatest safety, we may be exposed to the greatest dangers. The Lord's Supper is to be a joyful time. It is to be a supper with the people of God, unified around uh, the Christ of God. It is a time of great rejoicing and gladness. But beware. Beware that after the supper, uh, you don't begin uh, to misplace the origin of the strength that you receive from that supper. As you are strengthened with the spiritual meal, as you are strengthened with joy in Christ, don't forget that that strength comes from Christ. It is not your own strength. In other words, do not mistake the origin of the strength you received from the supper, because it is the strength of the Holy Spirit that He has supplied by His grace, not because you deserved it, but because He was pleased to give it. And then likewise, do not mistake the outcome of the strength you have received. It is not for greater independence, but for greater dependence. And I say this because as we grow physically stronger, as we eat our physical foods, as we eat all our veggies and finish our plates, we grow physically stronger. And what happens as we get physically stronger? Well, we find ourselves becoming more and more independent. We don't have to ask mom and dad uh, to do certain things for us anymore. We're strong enough to do them ourselves. But as we grow spiritually, the opposite is to be the case. As we grow spiritually, we actually grow in our awareness of how much we actually depend upon Christ and all of his benefits for everything we do. As babes in Christ, we can oftentimes just think that Christ is the cherry on the top or the sprinkles on the cupcake. But as a mature meat-eating Christian... As an adult in Christ, you begin to learn that Christ is absolutely essential to every breath you take. That you're absolutely dependent on every word that proceeds from his mouth. That every ounce of blood that was shed on the cross was needed for each of your sins. That every bit of strength that the Holy Spirit supplies is to restrain your own indwelling sin from destroying you or those around you. As we grow strong in the supper, we are realizing more and more that we depend on the strength of another. And so as you find yourself uh, after the supper having received such great and immediate benefit and blessing from Christ, do not forget that that blessing and benefit and strength is not your own, but it comes to you by the indwelling Holy Spirit and is necessary to restrain you from wickedness and evil not to grow independent of the Lord who sustains you and so beware for uh, for relapses on account of pride and humbly serve God and your neighbor in loving devotion uh, as you've vowed to do even as a communicant member of Christ's church and that's really where the catechism takes us next 
the next chunk for our digestion is um, teaching us to be faithful in doing what we've vowed to do. Or as the Catechism says, uh, to fulfill their vows. After we watch against relapses, fulfill our vows. Communing members of the RPCNA, uh, the church that we are members of, uh, we've taken vows to be members. Uh, it's what we've vowed before God and his, uh, his under-shepherds. And the Lord's Supper, then, is a great time uh, to remind you that you made vows before God. This is a, a covenant meal in which God is renewing uh, our interest in Him. He's holding before us, once again, how He has been a vow-making, vow-keeping God in promising His Son and then providing His Son in His Son's body broken for you, in His Son's blood shed for you. God made good on all His vows to you. And so in this covenant meal, as God is renewing that uh, gospel message to you and the good news to you, uh, we are to take heed and remember that we've also made vows to God or to then be encouraged uh, to uh, be like our God, to imitate our God in fulfilling the vows that we have made uh, to him and to his church. And so after the Lord's Supper is a great time to remember what this spiritual sustenance is for. It's to live out your vows to God as you serve him and your neighbors. And may his faithfulness in him fulfilling his vows to you uh, be the fuel uh, that fuels your faithfulness uh, to him. So in humble reliance upon his grace, we are strengthened uh, to fulfill our vows uh, but we're also to be frequent then in our attendance, to be frequent in our attendance. The, the catechism says it this way, and encourage themselves to a frequent attendance on that ordinance. Okay, so if you received blessing from the Lord's Supper, it makes sense then to uh, be frequent in your attendance at it. Make sure you're there. Make sure you're not refraining from it unnecessarily. Okay. Uh, this principle is perhaps best articulated by the psalmist in Psalm 116, verse 2, there on the front of your bulletins. Uh, the principle, uh, we'll read the verse first. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. Okay, you see what the psalmist is, is holding before us here? He's, he's crystallizing a principle that because the Lord listened to him once... He's going to call on him the rest of his life. Because he was blessed by the Lord inclining his ear to him. He knows he has the Lord's ear and he's going to continue to pray and continue to praise for as long as he lives. And that's the idea here. That as we have received blessing and benefit from the supper, let us avail ourselves of it as long as we live. Ridgely puts it this way. Our having experienced God's comforting and quickening presence in our attending on the Lord's Supper will effectually remove all those doubts and scruples which discourage us from engaging in it. Uh, and then he lists these three, uh, these three fears or doubts that we uh, wrestle with. First, fearing that we shall not behave ourselves in a right manner. Second, that we are not sufficiently prepared for it. 
And third, that we shall be disowned by Christ when we engage in it. Uh, Ridgely is saying that these are, these are normal fears for the sheep uh, of the flock of God to wrestle with and to have. And perhaps you've had one or all three of those fears. Well, Ridgely is saying that if you remember the quickening and the blessing and the benefit that you have received, and you continue then to partake of the ordinance, uh, you can keep these fears at bay. Because it is these precise fears that Satan will take as the accuser and will try to drive you away from the table. If you have a sensitive conscience, Satan is going to take these fears to try to dissuade you from coming to the table each time uh, we come to the supper. And so, uh, in all of this, we're to hear that there's a word of encouragement, uh, that the catechism is trying to give those who have received blessing that you ought to expect this blessing and you ought not to doubt that this blessing will come in future occasions and that because of that expected blessing, because of the sweetness of fellowshipping with Christ and with the saints in this meal, uh, that you are not to be dissuaded uh, from what the accuser may lay before you in trying to prevent you from coming to the table. Well, as we close, I just want to end with a few words of encouragement as you have fed on Christ uh, today, this morning, may you be blessed in your ongoing digestion of him. And if you were immediately blessed, like the disciples of Jesus that we read about from Luke 24, when their hearts burned within them, then I pray that your heart will continue uh, to burn with the warmth and with the love and the affection for Christ as he continues to reveal himself to you and give of himself to you each time that he breaks bread with you. Until he comes again, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the bread that has come down from heaven, your Son. And we thank you that in him and in partaking of him, that we have life and life to the full. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for his body broken for us, for his blood shed for us. And thank you for the immediate uh, blessings that we can receive in partaking of the supper. And thank you, Lord, that we can continue to dwell upon what we've partaken of today and continue to receive blessing and benefit from it. Help us to be diligent, uh, not only in our preparation each month to come to the table, uh, but also be diligent in considering our ways in how we have come to the table after the fact and continue to digest that meal that you have provided. And in doing so, Lord, we pray for your ongoing strength and sustenance, that you would truly nourish our souls and provide us all the strength that we need uh, to live lives that are glorifying and pleasing to you and enjoyable to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.